and welcome to the very first episode of History Lesson Part 2. I'm Jax McDonald. I'm Tyler Shipley. The movie we will be discussing in our very first episode is uh, 2008's Shea, directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring uh, Benicio Del Toro as Shea Guevara. But first, I think uh, maybe we should introduce ourselves a little bit since this is episode one. Uh, some people may not know very much about us. So Tyler, I'll, I'll, I'll get you to start since you're sort of, uh, I guess the more, um, qualified person to be <laughs> on this, uh, the, the more qualified person on this podcast. Um, what, do you mind just telling the listeners just a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, the, I, my qualifications to speak about movies are pretty much, I'm a guy that watches movies, but sure. Yes. Uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, I have, uh, for those people that sort of know me from Twitter, there's kind of two sides on the one hand, I, I am a professor. I do teach, uh, history and, and politics, uh, at a college in Toronto. Um, but I also, uh, came to Twitter initially to talk about the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, and so I have two sides to my, um, my, my Twitter, public um, persona, my public persona. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, really, a guy who likes movies and and uh, and likes to talk about kind of you know the backstory of them. We've done this many times in kind of private correspondence, so it's yes. uh, it's it's nice to finally take the plunge and and fulfill my duty as a white man and be on a podcast, <laughs> having a have, a have a podcast, <laughs> particularly a movie podcast. Well, yeah. Um, you also, I think it's, it's also worth noting in your capacity as a history knower that you also wrote a book, which people may not know. Yes, that is true. Yeah, I did write a book. Uh, it is a book about Canadian foreign policy. It's called uh, Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination. came out in 2020. And, um, you know, it, it tracks... Um, the history of, of Canada's place in the world. And I'm, I guess this is useful to anyone who's, who's listening to know, like I'm very critical of Canada. Um, <laughs> yes. I, you, you know, like, and I'm going to be very critical of, you know, um, Canada and, and the, and the West and capitalism and all of these things as part of our discussions. I think probably anyone listening already knows that, but um yeah, I mean, the book is a is a critique of the way that Canada operates in the world, you know, sort of founded on genocide and then projecting a foreign policy that reflects the the, the same goals that Canada was created with. And I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about Che Guevara today and, and, and the revolutions in Latin America. I mean, it's worth noting Canada was always opposed to, uh, you know, the left in Latin America and supported right wing dictatorships from, you know, including the one in Bolivia that, that ultimately had Che killed. So, um, yeah, I'll always probably spice things up with a bit of anti-Canada rhetoric. Yeah, I'm excited about that because uh, I feel like they're – obviously, I don't – I'm not particularly interested in doing this show at, uh, from a Canadian perspective, quote-unquote, no. uh, so to speak. First of all, that that's very neat. That would be very niche <laughs> the, yeah. when you're talking about movies, especially. I don't know if we'll do like shake hands with the devil or whatever. We'll, oh, we'll probably do some Canadian some Canadian movies at some point. But um, it it is just nice background I think to have since at least to start off. I imagine most of our listeners are going to be in Canada. Uh, my background. I met Tyler uh, through our yeah our mutual sort of uh, 
pay attention uh, to yeah to the Vancouver Canucks. Um, I my background's mostly in sports media. Um, I uh, do have some you know some very minor uh, experience schooling, et cetera, et cetera, and comms, and uh, you know I know how to point a camera, uh, stuff like that. I'm uh, I'm actually. Uh, in the fall, I'm going to be training to become a production assistant. So I'm going to be hopefully working on movies and TV shows in the near future. I that rules. Yeah. I didn't know that, man. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I uh, I also, um, I guess uh, it's worth noting that uh, I used to want to be a journalist, uh, and then I realized what a just. Uh, ass kissing factory that is, yeah. and uh, didn't then decided I was not going to be a journalist anymore. <laughs> and it's just uh, as well, I think the, the 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 entry point into being a Canadian journalist now is you have to like kill a raccoon and live tweet it. So <laughs> pretty much, yeah. You know, the, the the funny thing also is like I went into sports media, <laughs> and yeah. I was like, yeah. this is disgusting. Yeah. I can only imagine uh, what it would what it would be like uh, if you're you know you have to actually cover like. I don't know SNC Lavalin or something. Yeah, oh God! I don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that's enough. That's enough of an introduction. I think people uh, have a have a general idea of who we are now. Um, so yeah, the the movie we'll be discussing is uh, is Shay. It was released in two parts, but it is really one movie. So we'll just be doing uh, one episode for it. Uh, Soderbergh has uh, has like stated multiple times that it's just two movies because it was so long. It would have been, I think, a four and a half hour long movie to sit through all at once. Um, but he certainly sees it as one movie because uh, they did uh, a re-release later where they they showed both parts with an intermission. And apparently it actually made more money than the split up parts, which I think is funny. Um, hmm. But before we get too deep into the production of the movie, I think uh, how we're going to start most of these. And obviously it'll vary because... Um, not every movie that we're going to do is necessarily as like historically dense as this one or even necessarily depicting a, a point in history. But we should probably give a little bit of a historical background uh, for this one, which, uh, you know, Tyler is here to teach me <laughs> about history and I'm here to teach Tyler about love of the cinema. <laughs> so um, life. And, yeah. I mean, there's yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a there's a lot of different threads we could pull on. Um Cuba and the Cuban Revolution are going to be something that we return to, I think, often on the show. There are a lot of movies that are at least tangentially about the Cuban Revolution. So I I think in terms of more recent developments and uh, where Cuba is now, those kind of things are, are things we could probably tease out in later episodes. Maybe we'll do one on... Um, Cuba and the cameraman or something that would be a good one to do for for sort of later Cuban history yeah or soy soy Cuba it's really good yes sure and I can't wait for you to suggest movies too I have a big list of about a, like a at least a hundred and I haven't even consulted Tyler yet so <laughs> yeah, the list is nuts it's a huge list <laughs> and uh yeah I, so so I guess maybe we'll start because one thing if I have any complaint about this movie and I don't I don't really it's quite good um it's that it doesn't quite, for my liking, give quite enough context to why the Cuban Revolution happened and why, why the question of, like, why Shay? 
Why Che yeah. Guevara? Why this Argentinian man being, you know, the probably, I mean, honestly, maybe the biggest symbol of the Cuban Revolution, certainly, if not uh, second to, to Fidel Castro. Uh, so maybe a good place to start would be, I guess, uh, maybe just uh, giving our listeners an understanding of pre-revolutionary Cuba and how that uh, came to, you know, foment the the July 26th movement and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. I I, I watched that movie. So I watched it, you know, uh, when it came out. And I think I watched it a second time at some stage along the way. And then obviously, like this past week, uh, preparing for this, I watched it again. And I, I it's true. It doesn't provide a ton of context. Um, I mean, I think the first one does more so the the. You know, so the for people that don't know, the film is the two parts of the film. The first is set during the Cuban Revolution. The second part is set uh, in Bolivia um, about eight years later when, when Che goes to Bolivia to try to foment a revolution there. And in both cases, like, you know, we're thrust into the middle of these moments and the attention to detail is really, really impressive and quite accurate, I think, for the most part. Um, but the context isn't really there. And I wonder sometimes watching like someone who didn't know this history, would they, would there be enough? Like I'm watching. Yeah, and certainly. And there is, there is a, to the extent that there is background on it or whatever, they, to, to their credit, they get it out of the way immediately. Like the very first scene in the movie is, uh, everyone is gathered together, like all like Raul uh, Castro's late uh, Fidel Fidel <laughs> yeah. Castro's late. Uh, Shay is there. I think Celia Sanchez might be there. She's not really in this, which is kind of which is kind of too bad. Um, yeah. I, I I mean, there's things you have to decide what you're going to do. I mean, yeah, Fidel's yeah. barely in it too, right? Like, so yeah. it's it's about Shay. That's fine. Um, she is at least in it. She is at least mentioned, which is yeah. better than <laughs> what some people manage. Um, yeah. But uh, anyways, then they're having a meeting, and the the one of like really the first like big chunk of dialogue is uh uh Fidel kind of grandstanding about how bad the conditions are in in Cuba. Yeah, um, yeah, he's kind of holding court at the dinner table. Yeah, and you don't see that? Like it's not shown. Um and I don't know if that's like a uh uh a maybe a a sort of um squeamish lib creative decision that's being made to be like, well, you know, this is what they believe. But we're not right. gonna we're not gonna show. And I, you know, I mean, I, I actually think Soderbergh and the screenwriters did a very good job with this. Not make not really turning it into interestingly like a very political movie in mm-hmm. the sense that like it's not. I, I never got the impression through the entire thing that they were trying to like make propaganda. Um, yeah, which which is good, I, I I think. But we'll get to that later. Um, yeah. But I mean, so he talks about like, oh, education, you know, no one can read. And uh, one thing that he does mention that was that was very notable and good that they that they thrown in there is just like how much money uh, was siphoned out of the Cuban economy and into the American economy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I mean, so so an interesting sort of thing to note about the Cuban revolution is that even though. I mean, conditions are very bad in in general in Latin America uh, in that stretch sort of between, well, they had been bad in many ways for a long time. But, you know, thinking of sort of like the modern, 
you know, era uh, under the boot heel of U.S. imperialism, um, you know, things are, are, are pretty rough. Uh, and Cuba has a, has a quite a unique path through that, even, you know, compared against other Latin American countries um, in a couple of respects. The first is that um, Cuba is effectively a U.S. colony. Mm -hmm. um, as of 1898. So, so Cuba has a long revolutionary history and I don't think this is referenced. There might be one or two references just in passing in the film, but Cuba has like a long revolutionary history. And, um, in, in the 1890s, when Cuba is still a Spanish colony, there is a revolution against, uh, the Spanish, uh, colonizers and they're on the brink of victory and they're then they would have won and they were about mm. to win when in 1898 uncle sam drops in and says yeah. hey heard you guys needed some help dealing with spain uh and you know the cubans are like no we're good um and of course the united states um doesn't listen and intervenes in cuba finishes the revolution quote unquote on behalf of cuba yeah uh, and and then takes over they do reference this in the movie because uh, I just watched it last night. I watched all four and a half hours of it last wow. night. I was up until <laughs> uh, like three thirty in the morning. Um, and uh, they do they do mention this. I can't remember. Well, they must mention it in part one. In what context? I can't quite remember. But there's a group of them, and uh, they they reference uh, Jose Marti, who was yeah. kind of the the you could almost say like the Che Guevara of the initial uh cuban revolution against spain mm-hmm. um who is a I, from what i understand about cuba the actual like singular national hero yes. in cuba like more so than than anyone from the um the the sort of more uh well-known cuban revolution like fidel or or yeah shea or anything like that and uh one of them says you know it's like basically something along the lines of oh it's like jose marti said if uh, if the if the Americans help us get the Spanish out of Cuba, we're gonna have to get the Americans out, right? Or whatever, something right. like that. Yeah. Um, well, and that's exactly what, what exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. No, he was right. I mean, there's a reason he's a, a national hero. He's a smart dude, and and that's exactly what happens. The Americans stay um, and and run Cuba uh, effectively, un- really, uh, essentially until the the 1950s. Um, at, at some stage, and I don't remember exactly what year, I think it was in the 30s, uh, the United States does relinquish its direct official control over Cuba. But obviously, you know, it does so in a way that sets Cuba up as a, uh, a neo-colony and a puppet mm-hmm. government. Uh, in fact, it, there's a hate, an absolutely despised section of the Cuban Constitution, which the United States writes... Um, mm. And it is known as the Plett Amendment, where the United States, and it's written into the Cuban Constitution, that the United States has the right to invade at any time to assert its own interests in what's going on in Cuba. And this is written into right. the Cuban Constitution. So, you know, there's that piece of context. Um, and and um, that revolution, the one to oust uh, Machado in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, was even more violent and brutal than the uh, than the you know the the revolution that starts in in fifty six. Yeah, yeah. There were um, obviously there was uh, massive violence uh, 
perpetrated by the Machado regime, but there was also just like afterwards, just mo- lynchings and like mob justice. Yeah. Uh, you know, imposed upon like the, you know, the war criminals or whatever, or whatever you want to call them, the, the Machado officers or whatever. Uh, yeah, which the collaborators kind of, yeah, the collaborators. That's the word I was looking for. Um, that, uh, uh, that kind of provides context for what happens in post-revolutionary Cuba, but we can get to that later. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always interesting. Like there is this in any revolutionary movement and I, and yeah, speaking of, you know, what to do afterwards, there's always this question of, you know, um, what do you do with the people who collaborated? What is the nature of collaborators? If you live in an oppressive society, uh, you know, where there is some kind of oppressive government and then a, an apparatus of oppression that sort of supports it, uh, and you overthrow that or you're trying to overthrow that, there is the question of, well, what do you do with all of the people who for all of these years, you know, maintained and facilitated that system? To what extent are they responsible and how do you meet out that responsibility? Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's an interesting question that that Che, Fidel and, and others around the Cuban revolution had to think through. Um, and and I, I think, you know, in, in the Bolivia example, when we see part two, when Che goes to Bolivia, that's actually where this becomes even more kind of salient because Che gets betrayed um, in Bolivia. Che's, che's mm. death is a result of his being betrayed in, in some cases by peasants, by, by poor yeah. people. Um, and and so, also uh, so, so, uh, sold out by uh, Mario Minge or whatever his fucking name yeah, is. Monhe, yeah. <laughs> Monhe, yeah, Monhe, yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> played played by Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, yeah, yeah, enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so yeah, okay. To to finish the thought, it's like there is this question of you know what happens after a revolution, and mm-hmm. um, in the 1930s, the revolution fails, and the U.S. kind of shore things up, and Batista, uh, Fulgencia Batista, becomes the preferred puppet government for the United States. He effectively rules Cuba for the next 20 years. Um, or more. And, you know, Cuba, interestingly enough, in that stretch, is a relatively prosperous country by the standards of, you know, Latin America and the Latin Caribbean America, at the time. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's funny because we often think, oh, revolutions are going to happen where things are the worst, you know, where conditions are the worst. No. That's where people are going to rise up. Yeah, it's not always yeah. like that. I mean, I you think sometimes to, to just purely speculate on my part i think the 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 reason why a revolution happens in cuba specifically and it's a reason that this has happened previously in other places is it's not that things are the worst because if you just if you just were were to decide like okay well where are things like the absolute worst i don't know whatever the poorest country is at that time things are are so bad that people just they can't even think about it like they can't even it's just pure like survival how do i not die today or whatever yeah. or how do i how do i like uh, sadly when the conditions are really bad that can't not always by by any stretch but that can actually isolate people it can get yeah. them to focus more on okay well how do i improve like my standing my life my family or whatever right but yeah, I, think I mean in cuba specifically the what makes it bad is the inequality you have some people 
you know, you have you have gangsters coming in and running casinos and brothels and strip bars and just just raking in cash while there's uh, this huge class of, uh, you know, farmers and plantation workers and et cetera that that have that are just making absolutely nothing, basically. And you have that image like and it's right there and you can see it. You can see how much better some people have it, right? Exactly. And because Cuba is not, um, you know, utterly destitute. I mean, of course, some people were in Cuba, but but it's, you know, because it's not an utterly destitute place. It actually means that there is a bit more capacity for awareness of how how unequal things are, how unfair it is. Um, You know, we we often, you know, post-revolutionary Cuba talked a lot about how everyone could read and write and that they got literacy up to basically a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, which rules, which absolutely rules. And, and as, is a, as is Bernie a, said, yeah, because Bernie yeah. got a lot of shit for, yeah. uh, for defending the literacy programs in Cuba. And of course, eventually because it's America, he had to, I wouldn't say renege on it, but he had to, you know, um, she's like, yeah, he had to kind of, um, uh, tut, tut, certain yeah. elements or whatever but he did say uh teaching people to read and write is good <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a good thing <laughs> and i thought that was very yeah. funny because i was yeah. like yeah yeah why is that you know yeah why are you How not allowed that? to say that anyways okay yeah. right but i mean yeah. what's what's interesting is cuba had a pretty decent literacy rate even before the revolution which is sure. not at all to take away from how uh, impressive it is after the revolution. But it is to say part of the success of the revolution is that you actually do have a, a relatively literate society. You do have a, um, a, a sizable um, professional class in Cuba who, you know, okay, some are collaborators certainly with, you know, the, the oppressive Batista regime, but many are uh, critical. Many are, as you say, aware of like the inequality, you know, you're, you're a sort of small shopkeeper somewhere in, in mm-hmm. Havana and you're watching these U S mobsters and gamblers just run roughshod over, uh, you know, your society. So there is that layer of sort of, I mean, Fidel is the example because Fidel was a yeah, lawyer. Absolutely. Right. You Fidel have a class of those. educated, you have a class of educated people that some of whom aren't going to be collaborators some of some maybe even many of whom their dad was a farmer yeah they know you know or something like that they they, they know they yeah. they know people and they just happen to have been you know through whatever events like fortunate enough to get educated to get a decent you know get a job as a lawyer or whatever and i mean law, being a lawyer is such a perfect example because it's like you know even now Lawyers are e- tend to either be like the biggest scumbag pieces of shit in the world or shockingly <laughs> like, well, somehow somebody who had the money to go to law school, had the money to get an education, could have just gone and been uh, a, you know, a corporate lawyer or whatever and are nevertheless like doing the yeoman's work of whatever it is, you know, yeah. defending people, doing pro bono v- stuff, et cetera, et cetera. V- Vias, if you're listening. Yeah, we're- sure. If you're, if you're <laughs> a listener to my other show, Vias. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's true. And, and, and so, I mean, which also takes us back to that question of like, how do you assign responsibility uh, and, you know, blame or whatever after a revolution, you know, who is responsible, right? And, and 
you know, certainly there are the, in that professionalized kind of class, it's, it's going to cut both ways. What's also very cool about the Cuban revolution specifically is, and, and what separates it from, uh, well, certainly what happens in Bolivia later is that, uh, the, the guerrillas that were organized, uh, in the 26th of July movement with Fidel and Che, um, though many of them come out of those professionalized classes, they have a profound respect for, uh, the peasants, the farmers, the campesinos, whatever term we want to use, like, sure. um, and, and in fact, there, there's an argument to be made. And I think Soderbergh actually kind of understands this and, and, and depicts this at some level, probably because Che did. So he's taking his cue yes. from Che and, and Che seemed to understand that their relationship with the peasants, um, you know, in particular, like in the mountains at the beginning, um, is really, really important. And it's one of the key reasons why that revolution succeeded. They had support. They had mm. people coming to join their movement. Um, you know, they built a relationship. And, and this is really well depicted in the film when they're, when they're trying to build that relationship yes. with the peasants. And, and Che in particular, right, he, there's a scene where he's giving orders that no one is to mess with the peasants, no matter how hungry they are, no matter how bad things are and getting for the And then later gorillas. they execute yes uh, two guys who do mess with the peasants exactly and, he, and i it was kind of dope because like i mean it is very it is very brutal um which and i believe i said in my letterbox review like this movie does basically portray shay as a hero albeit yeah. an unoccasionally ruthless and brutal one which i think is completely fair um it's a revolution uh what do you expect uh but the 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 execution scene is is amazing because he he like just lays it all out. He's like, you fucked with these farmers. Uh, not only is that unacceptable, but as a result, other farmers were uh, tortured by Batista's thugs. Uh, you stole from these like incredibly impoverished people. Uh, you, you committed treason. The penalty for that is death. And you also raped the farmer's daughter, who is a teenager. And the penalty for that should also be death. Yeah. And I thought that was very like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, it's yeah. pretty solid. It's, it's, you yeah. know, the logic is pretty solid and, and they do a good job of cutting between that moment and the scenes where Fidel or where uh, Che is in uh, New York at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and people are doing Brilliant the like that they right? added and that. The, yeah, yeah, totally. Because the, you know, the other delegates, you know, especially from the right wing countries in Latin America, they're saying, Oh, you know, you've executed people and, and of course he says, yes, you know, we have, uh, and, and cutting between that and it's like, okay, but who is Che executing and for what reasons, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yes. And those reasons to me, I mean, you know, say what we want about like the death penalty theoretically, sure. abstractly yeah. as a, as a question, but, but it's, you know, the, the idea that the, the, the goal of the revolution is to build a better society and it's, it's built into the fabric of how the guerrillas are operating that they will not mess with poor people. They will, that they will not mm -hmm. accept, you know, in this case, sexual violence against them or theft or, you know, and, and Che also makes the point in that scene um, that it makes the revolution look bad, that in addition Absolutely. to being intrinsically yeah. bad, um, it also gives the revolution a bad name and makes it harder to build the support of the rest of the peasants. And so it's a propaganda like the, victory for Batista, basically. Exactly. When exactly. things like that happen. Yeah. And so that's important. Like, I think a piece of and, and Soderbergh clearly 
at, at some level understood it because um, because you get it, it comes through in the film. But that's like one of the key things that made the Cuban Revolution successful. It was the support of the peasants, which they don't have in Bolivia for a range of different reasons. And, yes. and I think that's why, you know, the two, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the two parts are so mm-hmm. contrasted, like in their, Very different the tone is so different, right? All right. So I think that that gives us a pretty good background on, the events that lead up to the movie. Um, I, I want to spend just a brief, um, just briefly touch on Shay himself, uh, because that's another thing that isn't quite, you know, explained in the movie, I guess. Although the shots of him at the United Nations, uh, in 1964 do provide a nice kind of context of at least like character development and understanding his point of view, but they don't really, they don't really understand uh, or you don't really understand if all you've done is watch the movie, why this guy is doing a, a a revolution in a country that he's not from and then leaves his life like his now like pretty nice life. Certainly, you know, in comparison to being out in the fucking jungle, uh, getting, you know, dysentery or whatever um, uh, to go lead, try to lead another revolution in another country he's not from. Um, and so I think this will dovetail nicely into into talking a little bit about Bolivia, and then we can talk a little bit about the production of the movie. But um, why why Shay? Why, how did he come to be, uh, I believe, still the only uh, non-Cuban in post-revolutionary Cuba to be granted official Cuban citizenship? Why is he buried in a mausoleum yeah. in in uh, in Santa Clara? Like, obviously, yeah. you know, he is a obviously he's a hero of the revolution. But why? Why is he there? Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool story. I mean, you know, I in thinking about Che this this week, knowing we were going to do this. I'm not sure that he made any really substantial contributions to kind of, you know, our understanding of revolution, of, of sure. communism or, or anything. Like, I wouldn't put him in the pantheon of the key thinkers. Um, but but I respect the hell out of his revolutionary commitment. Like you say, I mean, he's already been through um, the, the horrific trials of being in a revolutionary movement in the Cuban Revolution. And to make the choice to to give up that life in order to keep struggling to spread the revolution. And of course, he didn't just go to Bolivia. He also went to Congo um, yes. in, in the mid-60s, um, you know, in, in another unfortunately failed attempt to uh, sort of export the revolution or support forces there. Ah, um, uh, yes, and- Tyler. But, di- but did you know that when he wrote about the Congo, he said a few words that we wouldn't use now. And so he's oh, no. actually bad for going there. Cancel his um, and, ass. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Um, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, no, not I, even the word you're thinking either. Not even the word right. you're thinking. Not even yeah. anything like that. Just yeah. like, you know, some weird thing that nobody says anymore. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's a product of his time. Oh, yeah, and, of course. And I mean, and he uses he uses the F slur in the movie does. as well. But, he but does. it's historically accurate. Yeah, Every, exactly. It was, it was historically accurate for 2008, the movie, yeah. the year the movie came out. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. And, and, no, and, please continue. You know, yeah. and, and, and I think like you can, you can still, I mean, I think it's important to still criticize these, these figures. Like I don't want to be like anti-woke no. here. 
you know, like, no, certainly not. No, you know, like those, those, it's like, that is a jarring moment in the film when, when he, uh, uses it, the, the Spanish version of that word. And, and, but like at the same time, yeah, that is like these revolutionary figures are products of their moment. And, and what's impressive about such people is when they, when they, at some level, at any level, go beyond the sort of the, the mainstream status quo of their moment. Right. And, and they may not do it in every respect, but when they do it in some respects, it's like, that's what's impressive. And for Che, Mm -hmm. what's like, what's really impressive to me is he's a guy who, who many times could have uh, easily just rested on his privilege. Like Fidel, he came from a wealthy family in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, He was trained as a doctor. Of course, people know that, but I mean, he was en route to a successful medical career. Um, It it would have been pretty easy. Um, but yep, he was certainly. he was driven by a sense of the injustice, uh, you know that that he saw. I mean, if if you watch the two Soderbergh Che movies, I, I almost think it's you have a responsibility to go back and watch uh, the Motorcycle Diaries, which is which the, I've never seen, and, I'm, oh, and yeah. I'm glad you mentioned this with a sub movie we will do for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a movie it's, my dad recommended to me, which is which great. I find interesting. Um, uh, I would love to uh, talk to him after I see the movie because uh, my dad's a very interesting guy uh politically i'm glad that uh I'm, I'm glad i grew up in the family i did i guess i'll just put it like that um but uh you mentioned like uh shay is not really necessarily like a like a grand political thinker that has contributed to uh um you know marxism or or whatever but i i would uh hazard a guess um that outside of a an academic context so people learning about this either in school or in reading groups or whatever, way more people have read the motorcycle diaries than almost any, uh, you know, uh, yeah. what, you know, than like state and revolution or whatever. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, especially that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but, yeah. Yeah. I picked it. Yeah. I picked it up against the little red one. book. Mal's little red book might give it a, you know, run sure. for its money. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's true. And, and I mean, I think that's, again, part of the appeal of Che is mm-hmm. precisely that he is this, um, you know, charismatic, cool guy who, who made a choice that he was going to fight for a better world and he was going to sacrifice, you know, himself if necessary for a better world. Um, and, you know, there's so much and it's a bit less now, but for a stretch of kind of the late nineties and into the early two thousands, there was this anti-Che backlash. You know, there, there had yeah. been, of course, the sort of branding of Che as the figure of, you know, the symbol of revolution. And of course, yeah. often a commodified symbol of yeah, revolution. Sure. But there was an anti-Che backlash that I remember, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, it was this kind of like, you know, Che killed people. Che was a murderer. Why don't you ever think about that? You know, this kind of stuff about Che. I remember the- a teacher that I had doing that, like a, yeah. like a social studies teacher who... Was a pretty I like who I liked as a teacher and was pretty smart, but in retrospect, I'm I'm pretty sure was a libertarian, oh, um, brutal. especially because you know I, I'm thinking like me how I how he seemed cool and I liked him and he seemed like smart or whatever and I'm like well if I thought that when I was like 15 there's a decent yeah. chance that he was a libertarian anyway so. but <laughs> yeah. anyway regardless yeah yeah but I mean that backlash was pretty real and and you know I guess the smarter version of the backlash was was sort of like you know to suggest that he was this i don't know kind of like um 
uh, ego, egoistic, moral, sure. you know, yeah. sort of thing, you know, sacrifice himself, make a big thing about himself and, and, you know, mm. sort of center it all on him. Yeah. And, you know, and I even read that I, I, I was rereading parts of, um, Jorge Castaneda's, uh, Castaneda's, uh, book about him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a guy, Castaneda was a guy who was kind of a Mexican liberal and was he's snarky about Che at times. And he, he has this sort of theory of Che as a guy who just like needed, you know, to sacrifice himself, needed to be a saint, needed to be a Christ-like figure. And, you know, that it was all kind of to satisfy his own ego. And at some level, even if that's true, uh, you know, maybe it is at some level, you yeah. know, some part of his psychology. I don't give a shit. I don't yeah. give a shit because he genuinely sacrificed himself for something good. And like most people sacrifice themselves for something bad if they sacrifice themselves at all. So yeah. and to place that in a context that maybe North Americans or uh, Westerners can understand a bit more like I kind of have the same reaction. And it's actually it's just generally like uh, like left wing people who do this with uh, with like c- Civil War, American Civil War figures like lincoln or grant or whatever and don't get me wrong there are plenty of legitimate criticisms or whatever but uh you know they'll they'll sort of tut tut like oh well you know they didn't really they weren't really doing it for the right reason or this or that or this didn't happen or that didn't happen or they they said this that they shouldn't have said or whatever and it's like well there used to be slaves (laughs) right and now there aren't slaves and they did that like not single-handedly obviously or whatever but it's kind of like maybe just maybe just shut up like yeah that's not an interest you're not like you're not doing an interesting like oh but have you thought you're just kind of being an asshole (laughs) totally totally (laughs) anyway and especially with the che thing that is the vibe of it it's like oh you think you're so smart you like che well let me tell you what the you know let me let me spin some truth about che and I don't give a shit. I, I I don't give a shit. This is a guy who, yeah, multiple times could have retreated into privilege and li- led a comfortable life and still done things that would make him feel good. He could have been a doctor. He could have helped people who mm-hmm. were sick and still felt good about that. Um, instead, like you said, he gave himself diarrhea in the jungle on multiple <laughs> occasions. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know. Well, um, one thing I read a I read a review. Um, Actually, I might it might even be the one that I'm going to mention later. But like I read a review or whatever where someone was kind of like poo pooing the fact that Benicio del Toro lost a shit ton of weight and like uh, made himself look really gaunt for the Bolivia right. section of this. And it's and and I was just like, what do you fucking think he looked like? Like, what do you think it was like? Of course, he looked yeah. like that. Like, what? shut up. <laughs> what are yeah. you talking about? Like, anyways. Yeah. He yeah. looked, he was apparently really rough, like much Oh, I've rougher. seen the pictures. Yeah. I've seen yeah. The, the pictures of his uh, body. Like, yeah, yeah. he was, uh, he was He fucked. was very he was sick. Totally he was very, gaunt. very sick yeah. by that point. Like he was in rough, rough shape. And, you know, there are lots of strategic criticisms to be made, especially about Bolivia. And, and I think the film tries to get at that. I think the film does try, I mean... I don't know much about Steven Soderbergh, and I I certainly know that he's not a communist. Like I, I know mm-hmm. that he's not a Marxist, and this isn't, you know. So you, you know, I'll get into I, that a little bit. At okay, the end. Yeah, yeah, good. I'll be interested yeah. in that part. Yeah. I mean, I get, my sense is that he just really tried to capture what Che himself, how Che described these things, and Che had enough of a sense uh, that like 
things came together in Cuba so beautifully and so many factors lined up to make it work. And not the least of which, this is, a, this is often misunderstood about the Cuban Revolution. The U.S. actually had decided to bail on Batista. The U.S. Mm-hmm. had decided that he was uh, uh, unhelpful, that his dictatorship caused more problems than it solved. And the U.S. were kind of just sitting back, waiting for this revolution to happen so that afterwards they could pluck somebody else into the right position and control it afterwards. Like... Mm-hmm. So Batista didn't have the full weight of, you know, U.S. political and military support during that revolution. That's part of why it succeeded. Yeah. You know, they were lucky in a certain sense. Um, and, you know, for the most part, Che, the exception, they were Cubans on Cuban soil talking to other Cubans. Uh, they could relate to one another. They could relate to the peasants. They could build that support. I mean, there were so many things that came together to make it work. And most of those things were not there in 1967 in Bolivia. And so it goes disastrously. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there is a lot of criticism that needs to be brought to bear against Che, uh, Fidel, uh, you know, the USSR, Mario Monge. Like there's lots of people that that carry responsibility for it because you watch. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I mm-hmm. watch the two parts after watching part one, like I'm ready. I'm just like, give me a gun i'm gonna do this is so yeah exhilarating like i am so ready for this if i go down it is it's so it's so cinematic too like it's it just it's really it really is like um you know it, it it gives you the same um the same feeling that i imagine like i i've never actually seen it which i'm outing myself as somebody who has not seen this movie but it 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 I imagine the feeling you get watching like the Battle of Algiers or something, or even like, um, uh, you know, I, just any like great World War II movie or whatever with with huge like, uh, you know, sprawling gunfights through the city or whatever. It is on par with all of that in terms yeah. of just like how thrilling it is to watch. And even honestly, Battle of Algiers is rough. Like it's a great, it's one of the yeah. greatest films of all time. But I do, sure. I don't watch it. And think like I want to be part of that. I watch it and I Fair think, enough. man, and yeah. like in, amazing that that they pulled it I off. I just mean right? visually, yeah. You know, I've heard it's like thrilling or whatever. But so. th- but this, I mean, that's what's what's Che Part One makes you want to be a revolutionary. It sure, looks, yeah. It looks so heroic. It looks so glorious. You know, they're in the right. You're in. You inherently know throughout the movie that they are in the right. That they are on the right side of history. Um, there's the camaraderie that you get to experience between various guerrillas at different points. I mean, every scene that Camilo Sinfuegos is in, it's like, God, I want to hang out with that guy. I would just absolutely mm-hmm. love to be in that room with Che and Camilo and Raul, and they're having a cigar after winning yeah, the totally. battle at Santa Clara. Like, you know, you yeah. want to be part of it. And it's such a great feeling. And it makes you, it's for anyone who's connected to the left, it makes you think like, well, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we fighting a guerrilla <laughs> struggle right now? And yeah, the answer totally. is Che Part 2. That's the yes. answer. <laughs> because yeah, it's yeah, really, fair. really hard. It is really, really yeah. hard. It usually And most fails. of the time it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's yeah. And it's miserable. And you end up like having an asthma attack and diarrhea and killing your own horse in the jungle because it's so horrific. So, yeah. you know, I think it's it's by the end of part two, you're just you're so sobered. Um, you know, it's like the, the exhilaration and kind of, yeah, almost intoxication of 
what it feels like to be in that Cuban revolution. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wait a minute. No, like it was it was never going to be that easy everywhere else, um, which is historically very accurate. All right. Well, since we're 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 about, I think, at this point, almost an hour in. Um, so I uh, I do want to get more to the film side of it. But the, the last thing I'm going to ask is maybe just if you could give like uh, just a a lightning round uh kind of answer to uh or uh viewpoint i guess of like uh what's going on in bolivia that that uh makes it attractive for shay to try to foment a revolution there we obviously will not go into the level of detail we have about cuba a because it's not uh it didn't work and b because it's not as interesting and uh c because we don't have enough time but uh what's the what's the deal with bolivia why why go there i mean the quick version is Che didn't necessarily want to go there. Um, sure. che, che had been in Congo and and things had had not gone well. Um, and um, but Che is still committed to the idea of spreading the revolution and being an international revolutionary. Um, he's already announced quite publicly, and Fidel has announced to people in Cuba that Che has left. He renounced his citizenship. He's going to spread the revolution. He doesn't like the idea of like coming back to Cuba with his tail between his legs. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. looking actively for somewhere to go and spread revolution. He wants to go to Argentina, actually. He wants to go to you know the place where he was born and fight there. The conditions are really not good for a revolution there. Bolivia is chosen sort of between Che and Fidel, uh, chosen as like sort of the the best option, Mm -hmm. Um, even despite the fact that there are people in Bolivia, most of the left in Bolivia, that doesn't want this kind of, uh, you know, from outside, you know, Che and some Cubans are going to come and start a new thing. I mean, they already had a communist party. They already had uh, a separate sect of Maoists that were uh, kind of fighting a guerrilla struggle there. Yeah. So, I mean, it was not a great setup. And um, the other problem, the other really, so Bolivia is very poor. Uh, we said earlier, yes. we talked about how, you know, in some ways, being the poorest place in the world doesn't necessarily make it, you know, ripe for revolution. And Bolivia is a good example of that. No. Bolivia was yeah. the poorest country in South America. But for a range of reasons, it wasn't well positioned for the kind of revolution that Che wanted to to build. You know, this idea of... And they kind of had the the, the semblance of a de- democracy there as well, is my understanding. Like, it wasn't, it was a bullshit one. But yeah. like they they did um, present themselves as as being a, a democratically elected government that had the uh, um, that that was legitimate in the eyes of the people in some way. And I think actually they, they probably were legitimate in the eyes of a lot of people in uh, in Bolivia, even if they were detested or not well liked or whatever you want to say, you know, yeah, I, I, that even... has to be a factor on some level. It is a factor for sure. It's a, it, I think that's a factor more in, in the cities among the, the professional mm-hmm. classes. And then sure. for the peasantry, you know, again, for the, for the farmers, the, the poorest people, despite the fact that they are poor, as every bit as poor as the campesinos were in Cuba, they have some access to land. They have, there has been a land reform process. And I know yes, this is right. probably, this is the kind of thing that sounds boring and academic, but uh, for most people, who, who are farmers and the majority of human population has been farmers through our history. 
um, the the main struggle, the main problem that they faced in the last you know 300 years has been access to land. They're farmers, they need to grow food to survive, and they cannot feed their family because they don't have any land. And in the 20th century, revolutionary movements always, always um, had to figure out what are we going to do about getting land to the poorest peasants? Because rich landowners own all the land and poor peasants don't have any. And what they want is land. And part of the success of the Cuban Revolution is precisely that they take land from the rich landlords and they redistribute it to the peasants. Um, if this, Bolivia, and if this sounds, uh, if this sounds vaguely like it might have uh, uh, some bearing on what people are also mad about now, um, uh-huh. just replace farmer with uh, renter or even homeowner, and um, and you may have uh, some. Uh, you may kind of be able to get uh, into the the mindset of uh, of these 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 farmers here, because I mean, like I think you know. Even in, if you were to have a revolution now in the West, land reform would be a huge element of it. Oh, yeah. It would be, it would look a little different because we aren't farmers anymore, but certainly land and who owns it and how much of it there is, uh, would be a huge factor. Yeah. Well, it's the question of like, are you self sufficient? You know, can you look after yourself? Can you, are you in a position, do you have control over your circumstances so that you can like survive and maybe even thrive? And if you don't, then like, that's a problem. You know, if, if the landlord charges you rent and you can't control what the rent is going to be and it keeps going up and you cannot make your wages be more, it's like, these are the things as these things slip out of your control, you're more and more receptive to someone saying, Hey, would you like to be in control of like, how much rent costs and what your wages will be because we can make that happen. And that's exactly it for, for, you know, the peasants in Cuba having access to land, being told we will give you some land so that you can always know that you will be able to eat and you'll be able to survive. Um, That's huge. In Bolivia, this had already happened. This had already Mm -hmm. happened before Che gets there. Now it doesn't, it's not done well. It's not done in a very fair way. There are huge problems and limitations on how this is done. But like, it is a fact that in order to win the support of the peasants, the, the, the quasi-democratic, quasi-dictatorship uh, in Bolivia had done a land reform process. And so when Che shows up expecting to be able to get the support of these peasants, it's like, they kind of are already on side with the government because the government has provided them with land. They're suspicious of these outsiders, these, you know, it, mm-hmm. like they're Cuban, so they're not Bolivian in the first place, but they're also not indigenous. And a lot of the peasants yeah. in Bolivia were indigenous. Uh, so there's like many layers of we don't trust these people. And that's a big part of what goes wrong in Bolivia is they just do not have the trust of the poor people that they are you know, ostensibly there to fight for and with. They don't join. And if the you look don't at the, join the revolution. No, they they don't at all. That's a that's a criticism that is often levied at uh at Shea and the yeah. the the the, the, the guerrillas in the Bolivian campaign. Like you didn't get a single farmer to join up with you or whatever. Um and you know and that is reasonable. Um but it, certainly if you look at uh at the more recent history of um bolivia it it seems clear now at least in retrospect that nothing the left was never going to do anything there without um 
appealing to the indigenous population massively. Well, um, yeah. And letting yeah, exactly. them essentially lead um, whatever sort of left project um, you, you, they were going to pursue. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. I think that's that's good in terms of, well, obviously, as is going to be the case, like we're going to talk about uh, history uh, and and the, the historical context of the movie throughout the whole thing. But I do, I'm going to shift now gears to, I'm going to shift gears to, uh, the sort of the production side of uh, of the movie, which I will probably do in every episode, I would think. Um, I have some notes here that sort of vary between um, uh, how they approach the script, the subject matter, uh, Soderbergh's own sort of opinion on the material, everything from that to sort of more technical stuff. Um, so I, I just gleam this from the or I just took what I could gleam from the uh from the internet here, but there's some interesting uh production notes here. Um Soderbergh initially said he thought of Shea only as a bad guy. And I think that makes really? sense given wow. that uh given his who he is, where he grew up, et cetera, et cetera. But he really wanted to do the story justice and wanted to make a movie about this, and so he did about something like eight years of research for it. He wow. did tons and tons of research. He traveled to Cuba multiple times. Uh, he spoke to Shay's family members, to people, just random people in Cuba, to survivors of the uh, Bolivian campaign. And he said that the basically in all of his travels, praise for Shay was near universal. Everyone mm. loved him. And that sort of really struck him and made him look at him differently. And I think, I think really what this is is Soderbergh just admitting, like, I didn't really know that much about Che Guevara until I started working on the movie, which is not necessarily a bad thing, as we'll, as we'll see. On one of their trips to Cuba, Benicio del Toro accompanied him multiple times as well. He was deeply indebted in the production of this film. He actually met Fidel Castro, uh, very briefly at a book fair in Havana. Uh, for like two minutes and briefly huh. talked to him and Fidel expressed uh, his support for the project. That rules. Um, and yeah. and it needs to be said, the guy who played Fidel nailed it. Okay. Nailed it. So I am going to say that is true. He's very, very, he gets his voice down. He looks like him. He's got his mannerisms. But you got to get that guy standing on a soapbox or something when you're filming because <laughs> he's not tall enough. Yeah, that's he's true. he's the he's the same height, if not shorter than all of the guys like just film him standing on a on a box or something, because <laughs> that that really bothered me. Like and this is the thing. This is the the thing about why the Cuban revolution looms large and lo so much larger in culture than I think it is in terms of its, um, you know, I guess, historical importance. Uh, I don't even like to use that term, but like in, in terms of its contributions to like theory or whatever, is that. You know, you look at the other big figures in the history of socialism or revolution or whatever, you know, um, whether it's like purely academic or purely theoretical, like Karl Marx, Engels, uh, or people who were involved in revolutions, uh, Lenin. Uh, the problem with all of these guys is that they're nerds. Um, and the <laughs> I thought Cuban you were going to say that they're short. <laughs> uh, they, well, okay, that, that too. Uh, the Cuban revolution was led by chats. Um, and that's why people, uh, I think gravitate towards it so much. And, uh, yeah, uh, Guevara and, uh, Castro were both chads in their own way. And, uh, the guy who really gets screwed both in this movie and in 
modern history or just historical retellings of the Cuban Revolution is Raul. Yeah, totally. Um, he always gets screwed, and and, and it's because he was a nerd too. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, like I mean, you know, first like uh, the fucking Kennedy brothers just absolutely butcher your name, uh, <laughs> calling you Raul, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, you know, you 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 never get the you never get the limelight in the movies either. So yeah, fucking uh, fucking Raul like taught both Che and Fidel pretty much everything they know absolutely. about Marxism. Yeah. 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 But that's boring. Yes. <laughs> we want to see guys chopping on cigars and shooting people <laughs> and yelling <laughs> and giving yeah. 20 hour speeches. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the, the script required multiple revisions, um, uh, which eventually led to it being uh, split in two. It just deemed too dense. I have a quote here from Soderbergh about that. He said, you couldn't do the detail. You couldn't get a sense of the rhythm of what their days were like. And we had a start date approaching. I said, we have to stop and think about this. And two weeks later, I said, it needs to be two movies. We need to break it in half and do each movie in the way that we feel is appropriate. And by the way, we've got to do it in Spanish. Uh, <laughs> uh, we now have two movies, so all the deals have to be redone. And Peter uh, Buckman or Buchman or Butchman, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, the credited screenwriter for both films. And Benicio sat down and started from scratch to do Cuba. Um, on the note of doing it in Spanish, financing totally dried up for them as soon as studios found out they were going to do it in Spanish. They were originally going to do it in English. Um, and so the money all had to basically like 75% of the money was put up by some French production distribution and foreign sales company because there were like no American studios that had any interest. God, that makes me hate American studios so oh, much. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and he, and I may have a quote about it somewhere, but, uh, just in case I don't, he, um, he really, really defended the choice to do it in Spanish. He was like, I, we can't not do it in Spanish. Oh yeah. It happened in Spanish. Um, Soderbergh was uh, barred from filming in Cuba uh, because of the embargo. And so uh, Campeche in Mexico or Campeche, I'm not sure how to how exactly you pronounce that, uh, fills in for Santa Clara. They had to do like intense uh, scouting, uh, location scouting to find a place that could fill in for Santa Clara because it's like a very unique looking place. And he wanted specific uh, very specific things from the the areas that he was filming in for for the battle, which is like uh, one of like the best part of the movie and one of the yeah. best parts of like any movie. Um, oh, yeah. uh, he was super pissed that he couldn't film in Cuba. Like he was just livid. Um, hmm. And uh, I think I have a quote about that later on as well. Uh, he often serves and I didn't know this. I learned this in the process of researching this movie. Uh, Soderbergh often ref uh, serves as his own cinematographer and camera operator um and he did for this movie partly um so that they could have like a sort of a more intimate um filming uh sort of vibe i guess you know because you have less less crew members your director is right there pointing the camera at you um and uh he used radically different techniques for the two movies uh quoting here the director conceived the argentine as a hollywood movie shot in wide screen scope aspect ratio with the camera either fixed or moving on a dolly or a steady cam part two on the other hand uh was shot in super 16 with no dollies no cranes it's all either handhelds or tripods and you can feel that when you're watching by the way like yes absolutely you can feel and again it's part like two the, is way more vibe. claustrophobic 
Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, in part one, just from the feel of the film, that this is epic and it's going well and you're going to win. And you can feel in part two that like you just you feel like you're in the jungle and you're fucked. Like you just can feel it because of in part the way that it is shot. And he he used a different uh, color palette for the two films as well. Um, He referred to it as part one is green with a lot of yellow in it and part two as green with a lot of blue in it which i actually think if you've seen the movie Mm -hmm. you know exactly what he means when totally when you hear that at the end of part one soderbergh depicts uh guevara's derailment of a freight train during the battle of santa clara this is one of the highlights of the movie in my opinion and if you actually go to santa clara apparently something that i am going to do in a few years I finally convinced my wife that we're going to go to Cuba for a vacation at some point. Excellent. If you go to Santa Clara, I don't know if it's, they sort of make it on Wikipedia. They make it sound like it's like right next to Che Guevara's mausoleum. I don't know if that's actually true, but certainly somewhere in the same area in Santa Clara, there is actually a model recreation of that train derailment, which is so fucking cool. Uh, I, I, that was like, that and the and Che Guevara's tomb are like the two things that I was like, okay, well, we have to go to Santa Clara so I can see these two things. Uh, in filming the sequence, uh, Soderbergh balked at the digital effects solution, it says. Um, so I guess whatever, you know, CGI bullshit uh, they came up with for this, he hated. And so he managed to reallocate 500 grand from the uh, $58 million budget to build a real set of tracks and a train powered by two V8 car engines. And to film the scene, they had six rehearsals and could only shoot once. (laughs) So that is the only take of that happening because they could only do it once, which makes sense. How many times can you fucking derail a real train? It's going to get busted and shit. Um, So I thought that was very cool. Soderbergh also uh, uh, shot the scenes with Shea very specifically. He's almost never shot in close-up except right at the end of part two when he's sort of being closed in on and then finally when he is alone. And uh, the reason for that, uh, apparently, is Soderbergh said, uh, you can't make a movie about a guy who has these hardcore sort of egalitarian socialist principles and then isolate him with close-ups. So Mm. he's basically always filmed uh, with the camera like slightly back and usually with other people in the sight line. So if he's talking to someone, you see both people. You never see they don't do like a Coen Brothers thing where you get the the shot of the guy talking and then the reverse shot of the other mm-hmm. guy talking. It's all like filmed sort of from like at least the waist up with another guy. The The subject is never just him. It's always him and someone else, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Soderbergh decided to uh, omit the uh, um, La Cabana stuff, um, all of the the sort of uh, post-revolutionary tribunals and all of that. And uh, <laughs> I love this quote from him, actually. He said, there is no amount of accumulated barbarity that would have satisfied the people who hate him. I'm sure some <laughs> people will say that's convenient because that's when he was at his worst. Yeah, maybe. It just wasn't interesting to me. I was interested <laughs> in making a procedural about guerrilla warfare. Um, and I love that uh, yeah. because as we're going to get to, I don't think Soderbergh is... Uh, I, I don't think he has terrible politics. If you if you've seen a lot of Soderbergh movies, a thing that does come up again and again is um, 
a sort of uh, a, a dislike of corporations and greed. And yeah. certainly if you get him to talk about the film industry, he, he has one uh, sort of quote that's like, uh, oh, uh, yeah, the studios are 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 committing an assault on uh, <laughs> filmmakers and screenwriters, apparently uh, with the full participation of the audience, which I thought was very <laughs> funny. And uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, not shockingly met with um, protests and uh, a reviled critical response in Miami. Miami's mayor, uh, Maddie Herrera Bauer at the time, uh, even went so far as to say, we must not allow dissemination of this movie. So who hates freedom of speech now? (laughs) Uh, Conversely, the movie was uh, very warmly received in Cuba, where 2000 Cubans, uh, many who participated in the revolution, swarmed Karl Marx Theater in Havana for the premiere. Benicio talks about what that was like there. Uh, apparently he just got like, uh, people, people were just all over him. Like they just, hmm. everyone wanted to talk to him and, uh, you know, express their, uh, excitement over him playing Shay or after the movie, like, oh, how great he was as Shay. And he is yeah. fantastic as Shay, by the way. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of goes without saying, but it was also, uh, well received in most of the rest of Latin America, including Venezuela. Where interestingly, uh, Del Toro, ha- Del Toro had a summit with, uh, Hugo Chavez. Cool. I found the art article. It's not clear really what they talked about or what the deal with it was, but, uh, Benicio was basically just like, yeah, he, uh, seems like a nice guy. Uh, that's basically, that was basically cool. his extent of it, of what he had to say about it. So as far as, uh, his sort of outlook on Shay, uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, talking a little bit about Soderbergh's politics, which, I think are, you know, as I said, like they're not for Hollywood. They're not bad, but there he there are. I was able to find like quite a few quotes on um, sort of his outlook on Shay and how he approached that when it came to making the movie. And um, he has referred to himself uh, publicly multiple times as, quote unquote, agnostic on Shay which I think is fine, particularly for the movie that uh, he was trying to make. As I said earlier, like I actually uh, kind of appreciate how non-propaganda mm-hmm. it is. But uh, I, was, I was able to find a few interesting quotes. There was one from an interview with Politico where someone asked him, like, why is this story relevant today or whatever? And he said, uh, we're certainly seeing the result of what happens when you make profit the point of everything, where money that's being earned doesn't represent any particular product or labor on anybody's part. That can't sustain because it's magical thinking. It can't go on indefinitely because eventually it crashes. Shay's dream of a classless society, a society that isn't built on the profit motive, is still relevant. The arguments still going on are about his methodology. Which I think is like... No, Not the worst answer you could have decent. to that question, yeah, you know? yeah. especially for especially again for just like yeah. sort of a lib like filmmaker or whatever. When asked about uh, the idea that his movie was a, a, a hagiography, which is apparently a criticism that a lot of people had, which I find kind of surprising. Uh, he just said quite a long answer here, but it is quite funny, I think, and good. Uh, all I can say is if you can't sit and watch the whole four and a half hours and understand that it's not a glamorization of his life or a commercial for his ideology, then you haven't looked at it objectively. And there are things on the screen that you have chosen to ignore or not see. I stand behind the movie, and I feel that in 10 or 20 years' time, it will be viewed for what it is, which is a dispassionate portrayal of certain periods in his life. For people who entirely define Shea by what happened at La Cabana, 
The only part that will be satisfying will be the last 30 minutes of part two, which will be like political porn for them. I had total creative control over the movie. Nobody was telling me what to do. His actions never really had an impact on my upbringing or the upbringing of anyone around me. I came into this not knowing much about him. And I came away admiring certain aspects of his character and disagreeing with certain other aspects of his character. And there's no question. We're very clear that this guy killed people. We're very clear on that. And he was willing to be killed. Again, if you're anti-Shay, you've got to be happy with the way it ends. He's executed without a trial in a 12 by 12 room. And he would have been the first person to say, that's the risk I took. That's pretty good. That's a good quote. I, it's good. It, it's, it's, it's all I really ask for from a filmmaker which is to just defend the movie that you made on the on the grounds that you know you should be defending on which is just its you know validity and artistic merit and then um and i mean i would say too like you know i don't actually believe at the beginning he sort of says like it's a dispassionate uh, you know, look at these things. And I, I mean, I don't actually buy sure. that that's possible. I don't think you can be totally. Yeah. But yeah. I do yes, think, fair. I do think that he, um, the part where he says he's agnostic is true because that comes through. Like it, it comes yeah. through that you're not, you're never told you should just celebrate Che because what a great dude. Everything he does is great. You're always told, you know, this is what he was up to. It's hard to read. There's parts that are good and parts that are bad. You know, you can watch it as a leftist. Well, you're just given his, yeah, you're given his, um, you're given an understanding, a, a very, a fairly, uh, brief, uh, uh, service level one, but you're just given an understanding of what he thought and what he did and yeah. why he did it. And, and I do think like for me, I watch it and I'm like, this rocks. <laughs> Because I basically agree with everything. Um, but I could certainly see someone who doesn't necessarily much care for Shay or have much love for the Cuban Revolution watching it and just sort of coming away being and thinking like, oh, you know, he was such an ideologue yeah. or whatever. Because he's just saying, you know, like the scenes at the United Nations, which are my, which is... Uh, I think probably the biggest reason why I like um, part one more than uh, part two, or not the biggest reason. I mean, the biggest reason I like part one more than part two is part two. Yeah, so they win in part and, one. And it, yeah, exactly. And you'll 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 notice too that American critics uh, preferred part two. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but you know, like I I uh, I think the the reason I liked part one a little bit more is it just gave you it broke it up and it gave you a little bit of something else and a little bit of a, an idea of what, um, what they were fighting for. Right. And, um, which I, but I, would, I yes, and I, yeah, I would sorry. say like from a filmmaking perspective, what's cool about that is that it mirrors, I think something about what, about the politics, because, so when mm -hmm. the Cuban revolution is being portrayed in the film, you're also getting this sense of, well, what's it about? Why? What's the politics behind it? When yes, the Bolivian, yes. uh, you know, guerrilla struggle is being undertaken, you're not getting those cuts to the UN speeches in part, I, I would argue, because you're further away or Che is further away in that moment from the, yes. the a sort of pure articulation of 
his politics. I mean, yes, of course, he's there because he wants to raise up the conditions of the peasants. But what do you do when you go to a place to raise up the conditions of the peasants and the peasants say, we don't like you, we don't want you here? You know, like, it's clearly or, more complicated. I mean, better, better yet, like, we just don't care. Or we don't trust you. Or, or we don't or trust you, yeah. Something here isn't working. Like, it just, you know, the very, the, the everything about the Bolivia campaign was was off you know from the start yeah. every part of it every every aspect of it was did not work and didn't land and so in a way it's it's it works as a film that yeah. he is further mm -hmm. away from that ideological clarity that you get in the first film and i will say upon rewatch i did like the second part more um because i felt like i understood it more and i i i kind of noticed how just constricting it got over time and how you could really feel it. Uh, you could really feel, uh, you know, the CIA and, and yeah. the, the, the Bolivian government like closing in and the, and the conclusion is, is fantastic. Like the, the final scene where, like where they apprehend him, like just before they apprehend him all the way to the end is all brilliant. I think if I was making this movie, I would have, because you've already made a four and a half hour long movie. Um, you could make it a little bit longer or you could maybe just cut some of the minutia from the um from the Bolivian campaign because it it really is just minutia like a lot of it really doesn't have much to do with anything um i, I would have maybe intercut in a little bit of like some motorcycle diaries stuff um into the into part 2 um to sort of give like a and I think that would be that would be interesting artistically because you're now flashing back even more like in the first in the first one, you're actually flashing forward. And then in the second one, you're you're flashing way, way back into him as a young man, just to kind of like give the, you know, give a little bit of background on like uh, how he was radicalized. And then you would and then for me anyways, that it would make that that uh, the just continuous obvious failure of the bolivia campaign like hit a little bit harder yeah because you, it would sort of give you an idea like of why he's why he has married himself to to dying in the jungle for this lost cause or whatever yeah now, well, and also granted, that would have also been something you probably do if you're trying to make more of a leftist film so uh, you know i mean yeah there's that element too i mean what would be interesting about it is certainly like he, I mean, he goes to Bolivia in, in in that first trip. I'm I'm pretty sure Bolivia is part of the trip, and and you know a lot of the stuff that that does radicalize him early on in that on that trip are his encounters with indigenous people. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, he, he he writes a lot, and actually they do a really good job of it in the motorcycle diaries of of you know the way that um, seeing indigenous people, especially in, in Peru, there's parts of the time when he's in Peru, where he's just struck by, um, the, the deep injustice of colonialism and, and the ongoing relations between, you know, the mestizo people and the, and the indigenous people. And, you know, to cut back to that during the Bolivia campaign would have been really interesting because I, I would argue like a, a significant part of the failure in Bolivia was, the guerrillas not having any meaningful connection to the indigenous people. Um, you know, I mean, a few of them did speak, um, you know, did some, some training in indigenous languages, but beyond that, they really, they just didn't understand the specific context 
um, that indigenous people in Bolivia in that moment were in. And it's like that would have made a big difference if they had been able to bridge that gap. And so, yeah, you know, you cut back to Che kind of learning his early radicalization is precisely about the the way that, you know, Latin American society uh, treats indigenous people. I think that would have worked really well. But I mean, you're right. It was also it was a four and a half hour movie already. So, <laughs> yes, yes, certainly. Um, and uh, I also was able to find a quote of uh, from I believe also from the political uh, Politico article of uh, of him decrying the embargo. And he has a very. Uh, he has a very, I think, the sort of standard, like, uh, progressive liberal take on it. Uh, but once again, still better than you would get from a lot of people in Hollywood. Uh, he just says, what they ought to do is really obvious. Whether they'll do it is one of those questions in which you have a lot of people with certain beliefs controlling the dialogue and therefore the problem is not getting solved. How many years are you supposed to give a bad idea? Would you stay married to 45 years, uh, for 45 years to someone you hated? It's obvious what we're, doing isn't working the answer is lift the embargo flood the place with tourists put the onus on them and call their bluff the best uh the people of the u.s are the best advertisement for its ideals not its government and i mean i do obviously i don't agree with the substance of that but i do think it's um it is it it is at least intellectually consistent right if you believe that the american system is superior to the cuban system which uh, even, you know, those are not things that exist in a vacuum. So it's already kind of a yeah. false premise. But, but if, but if you do believe that, then why would you cut, uh, cut Cuba completely off from America and Americans? Yeah. And I, I actually think that the real reason for that is as you see, when tourists do go to Cuba, uh, they tend to leave with a much, um, sunnier idea of what it's like than they had before they got there. Uh, and I think it's it's almost actually the opposite of what uh, Soderbergh is describing. And that's a big part of the reason why, you know, Americans who go to Cuba aren't allowed to spend money at anything owned by the Cuban government, which is <laughs> yeah. insane. I know. Uh, I mean, God, like not to not to get into that too much, but like you really thought the embargo couldn't get any worse. And then. Trump comes up with something like over 200 new sanctions. Yeah. Like, oh, Jesus. Anyways. Yeah. So that's uh, that's basically the the production side of the movie. Um, uh, I really liked it. I thought it was really good. I thought Benicio was fantastic. I thought all of the uh, Soderbergh is quite good at filming action sequences and uh, and, you know, war like i don't know if he he's ever really done another war film but he all of the uh you know particularly in santa clara when they've spent uh that huge chunk of time in the jungle and then they come into the city like all of that stuff just pops so much it's so thrilling to watch um what would you what what would you give this yeah i thought i think it's excellent i think it's it's a you know a four out of five or even a four and a half out of five kind of i I gave part one a four and a half out of five on letterboxd and part two a three and a half out of five on letterboxd but i think i would maybe bump that up to a four now upon rewatch and you know i like i feel that way too but my, my instinct is that way and i think it's that's part of the reason you have to view them as one movie in which case you know, I think that would that would inflate because part two is a bummer. You said it. Part two is a bummer. Um, part two is really hard to get through after the first 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes of part two still feel kind of good. And then after that, it's just like you're just getting pummeled with the harsh reality that that is kind of setting in. 
Um, and, you know, one thing that's, I think, actually significant, I don't know how much this is conscious on Soderbergh's part, but I think a lot of what makes part two so much harder to get through is the lack of Fidel. Fidel is so much more important to the story than, again, even perhaps Soderbergh realizes. Like, you know, my understanding of, of Che himself is that that he needed Fidel. And and I think one of the things that you notice in in part one is that Che is following Fidel's instructions uh, and and trusting Fidel and often therefore you know making good calls that he wouldn't have otherwise. Che didn't necessarily want to do uh, that march uh, early on where he went with uh, the injured and they went off in a separate column, but it was the right call. When Che is on his own in Bolivia and he is in charge, he makes a number of very bad tactical decisions. Um, you know, he trusts the wrong people. He doesn't... It's very clear in the second film that he's like... People are... They respect him at some level for his past, but he's he, he's mad at people all the time. That, that There's tension, yes. you know? Yeah. It doesn't... When Fidel is around... Um, as he's portrayed in part one, and I think it does it does reflect something real. He does exercise a lot of authority, but he's such a charismatic guy that it 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 softens that kind of authority that's being uh, you know expressed. Yes, yes, and, and the lack of Fidel in part two, uh, you you feel I I feel it because when Fidel is on the screen in part, even like when he shows up late to the dinner, it's funny somehow because it's Fidel, it's funny that he's late. You know, he's always there's always something entertaining about him. Um, and well, I and mean, the, the real way, the real Fidel Castro was had such a gigantic personality, yeah. like as you would have to, I think, to yeah, um, to be Fidel Castro. <laughs> and and Soderbergh obviously did his homework on Fidel as much as he clearly did on Che, because there's one fantastic moment, and I think it's early in part two. Um, you know, when Fidel is kind of there just briefly, kind of he's at a dinner, you know, someone informs him about something, but he's as he, you, you come over to the scene where Fidel is talking to some people and you, you're, you know, you'd think it'd be some sort of serious matter of state or whatever, but he's actually just like telling them how to, how to make lasagna, how to make lasagna. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's absolutely, just holding yeah. court and it's so entertaining. He's slapping his hands and, and, you know, and then, you know, a layer of bechamel, you put the bechamel and then carne, carne, carne. And he's doing this whole yeah. thing. And that's yeah. real. That's exactly what he's like. There's Absolutely, actual yeah. there's actual footage of him doing that. Um, but also oh, it's, it's people so always funny. talked about yeah, it. I've seen yeah. It. yeah. Such a classic Fidel moment. And yeah, I mean I think that's part of why part two feels harder. It's like Fidel's not there. Che's on his own. He can't hold the weight of it. Um so yeah, I think it's great. I, I think overall the film really works, and I think that the two parts being the way they are and tethered to each other the way they are. Um yeah, I, I think you come away with like, even as someone on the left already, even as someone who already, you know, is is sympathetic to the ideology, you come away with a real sense of this is hard. Doing revolution is hard. It can be truly magnificent when it works, but the risks are very high and, and the stakes are very high and every little decision is going to have a huge impact, you know, so so take it seriously. It's dialectical. Yeah, yeah. The movie absolutely. is dialectical, basically. It is. Yeah. It is. It it tells you to take this thing seriously. Don't play act. You know. Don't. You know. If you want to bluster on Twitter as some kind of you know Marxist, uh, you know, hammer and sickle, whatever. 
fine. But in <laughs> yeah. reality, this stuff is really, really yeah. hard and requires a huge amount of careful thought and courage and, and a lot of other things. So, yeah, I think it's a good film. Well, that's our critical appraisal of the movie. But I did just want to close out on uh, a juxtaposition, uh, if, if I may, of a couple of different reviews of a couple of different movies by a San Francisco Chronicle uh, film critic named Mick LaSalle. And uh, I read his review of Shay and I was uh, scratching my head and uh, kind of I was kind of baffled uh, by it. And uh, well, I'll read it to you and then I will uh, and then I'll explain explain what my other uh, what the deal with my other reviews are. So this is from his review of Shay. From 2008, San, San Francisco Chronicle. Steven Soderbergh has made a 257-minute film in two parts about the life of Che Guevara, an undertaking that's baffling in a number of ways. To be specific, it's possible to watch all four hours and 17 minutes of this picture and still not be sure why Soderbergh told this man's story, why he thought it was worth such epic treatment, and why he handled his subject with such glowing veneration. And so this is already... uh we're already uh, warming up to something interesting here. I will add, by the way, parenthetically, that uh, this Sam critic loved um, Judas and the Black Messiah, oh. which I found yeah. interesting. But he also said that uh, it's not clear what the point of view of Judas and the Black Messiah is. So I don't think this guy understands uh, movies. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I just, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, if Soderbergh made it as idol-worshipping an epic about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, actual heroes with tangible positive legacies, <laughs> people would gag at the naive treatment. Perhaps with Shea, the hope is that audiences might be confused or browbeaten into reverence, into just assuming they're missing something. Instead of making the case for Guevara as a hero, Soderbergh just assumes we all agree. The movie is the communist guerrilla version of the Stations of the Cross, in which we see Guevara at various stages, enduring various hardships. The invitation is not to think, but to admire and maybe to worship. Uh, Soderbergh and his screenwriters barely dramatize scenes. Rather, they present them in an uninflected way, as though to recreate a textured, real-life sense of what it must have been like to actually be there on the ground in this supposedly amazing time with the supposedly great man. Um, the thing I don't understand about that is that you just said he it was like a veneration and that it had this uh, very specific propagandistic uh, point of view, and then you say that it's presented in an uninflected way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how it can be both those things, but. Uh, to be sure, Guevara, man and legend, had impressive personal traits. He was brave and brilliant, dedicated to his cause, and a rock star among re revolutionaries. Guevara is the rare case of a man who was at least as handsome and charismatic as the actor who plays him on screen, Benicio Del Toro. But what's the legacy? Guevara hel helped lead the Cuban Revolution, which ushered in Fidel Castro. Thanks to Guevara, the poor weren't quite as poor, and a corrupt regime was toppled, but in place came a totalitarian dictatorship. <laughs> Fifty years after the so-called liberation, there has been no free election in Cuba. We can't get into that, but just for the record, there are elections in Cuba. Um, they don't look like how our elections look like, but, uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of love for what our elections look like. So yeah, yeah. That's, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, 
Then Guevara went to Bolivia to bring the joys of totalitarian communism to that country, as though that were a good thing, and as though the United States might just forget the Monroe Doctrine and tolerate another, another Soviet satellite in Latin America. If Soderbergh wanted to make a case that such actions by Guevara were indeed useful and heroic, rather than blindly utopian and destructive, Shea could have been a provocative and fascinating polemic. But because Soderbergh won't dive into the realm of ideas, his movie becomes a series of noble tableau, and watching it is like sitting through a slow four-hour worship service in the woods. It's also hard to resist mentioning that the film itself is a refutation of Guevara's politics. This is a pro-Castro, anti-CIA film made by a mainstream American director, and it will be shown in art houses throughout the country. Try making an anti-Fidel, pro-American film in Cuba and see how that works out for you. Um there's a lot of reasons why uh, I thought this was funny, but the funniest thing is that he does. He has not re- like I read like 20 of his re- other reviews just for kind of out of curiosity, and none of them are like this. And I read them all about like political films or biopics or whatever. Um, is, is he is he a gusano? Like is he a Cuba, Miami the, Cuban? What's no, the... not to not from what I can tell, and from what I can tell, he's even. Um, he would even seemingly present himself as lightly liberal mm. or progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly by his, uh, what he said about, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah and others as well. Um, um, he, you know, he, he, he mentions, uh, you know, he, he certainly try, seems like he tries to, uh, you know, he talks about systemic racism in, uh, when he talks about Judas and the Black Messiah. So, so certainly he, trying to pass himself off as at mm. least like a liberal or a moderate liberal um but uh anyways i want to juxtapose that with uh a section uh, from a few different reviews uh one for darkest hour which uh i referred to you uh as um when i talked to you i referred to it as uh that dumb fucking winston churchill movie with <laughs> gary oldman in it that i couldn't yeah. remember the name of yeah. Oh man, I hate. I I'm not looking forward to watching that. <laughs> Oldman's main accomplishment, however, is in the way he captures the many nuances of Churchill's demeanor and personality. There was something rather cute about Churchill, something lovable about him, <laughs> which is not to say that Oldman goes around trying to be cute and lovable. Rather, rather he is irascible and impossible and sentimental and romantic and frustrated. But in all ways, this Churchill is human and authentic and fighting alone to save his country and the world from Nazi barbarism. Oh, God. So, uh, you know, there were a few uh, hundred people killed at La Cabana. You could call them war criminals. You could not do that. I, I, we don't have time to get into it today. But uh, if you want to co- just if you want to just do nakedly like total Body bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in uh, W, he discusses uh, James Cromwell's, uh, he's the best part of the movie, if you've seen it, uh, his performance is George H.W. Bush. Um, Cromwell gives the film's stand-up performance as George H.W. Bush, playing him as a serious, decent man who is at a loss when it comes to his oldest son, and ultimately ashamed of what W does on the world stage. Cromwell is the one actor who makes no effort to sound like his real-life counterpart, nor does he look like the elder Bush except in terms of height and weight. But he conveys his gravity, simplicity, and essential decency. Oh God! And this is my hagiography. And this is my personal favorite. This is from uh, his review of the Iron Lady. (laughs) Oh no! Uh, What the movie cannot disguise, almost to the point of making one wonder why the filmmakers even bothered. This is the uh, 
uh, Margaret Thatcher biopic, for, uh, by the way, for those of you who haven't gone on, is a certain left wing squeamishness about a right wing subject. Screenwriter and director, uh, screenwriter Abby Morgan and director Philelia Lloyd take on one of the most extraordinary women of the last century, but they can find nothing good to say about her besides that she was tough and a woman and that it's too bad she is suffering from dementia. Even the tragedy of the dementia is undercut by this strategy. Unless we are made to believe that this woman was remarkable and not merely that, but a positive force in the world, the loss of her faculties is little more than a routine shame. Fortunately, Thatcher's life is too interesting to make uninteresting. And Thatcher's feminism is something Lloyd can sink her teeth into without apology. So we get effective scenes of young Margaret insisting on living a life of consequence. Later, Thatcher's singularity is emphasized with shots of her overhead, a lone woman in a sea of blue suits, or as the only pair of high heels in a row of black wingtips. Through Streep's performance, it's impossible not to feel for Thatcher in those early years, addressing the commons and enduring the condescension of her male colleagues in the opposition party. So there you have it, folks. Condescension, uh, facing condescension, that makes you a hero. Uh, shitting yourself and dying out in the woods <laughs> so that uh, people can get, you know, so that people can have housing and learn to read. Stupid. Yeah. Uh, hagiography. Evil. Uh, anyways, I thought that was very funny. Um, and uh, I know it's been a long one, but I wanted to include it because I knew you would be... Uh, I knew it would make you mad. Oh yeah, it makes <laughs> me. You would be I'm disgusted busting. By it. I'm busting about all three of those, and like we'll have to. It's almost like we have to do all those movies now just to. Well, I think we will probably uh, ultimately, and um, this is the the show is going to take on uh, a lot of different forms. This was a very history heavy one. Uh, there will be others that will be a lot more heavy on the filmmaking side or the ideology side. But uh, I think that that pretty much wraps us up for for episode one. Uh, was there anything you wanted to uh, add before we sign off? No, I think I'm I'm good. I, I think just uh, I'm, it's I, because you mentioned Margaret Thatcher. I cannot resist thinking sure. of that Scottish woman uh, that was interviewed on Margaret Thatcher's death and and old lady, and she says uh, you know something to the effect of like I put a uh garlic around her neck a steak in her heart and garlic around her neck so she never comes back <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah yeah people so. the 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 british really uh their their like finest moment was when thatcher died in my oh, opinion yeah. they had some good uh oh, yeah some good ones all right well i will i will just say because this is episode one follow me on letterboxd at fail son mcdonald you uh you can you can see all my little capsule reviews of all the movies we're gonna do and others that I watch. I review almost every movie that I log on there, unless I just have nothing to say about it. So uh, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time.